We will be tackling the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. We have spent a few weeks looking at this book, and we will uh, conclude the the sermon series uh, this morning. All right, real quick, uh, just by uh, way of thank you, um, it has been a year since we've come together, but this isn't my anniversary, this is our anniversary. Um, It has been an amazing thing. Uh, to see two churches come together as one to serve the Lord, to uh, recommit to the mission that God has given us, uh, to go after the things of God. And uh, my prayer is that the first year is, is just a small taste of what God has in store for us. So I, I thank you all uh, for this past year. There's so many things going on, um, but it has been a joy to serve in this place. So thank you. All right, Nehemiah 13, a couple things I I, I want to point out, and I want to get you prepared um, for where the text takes us. All right, so what you're going to see in Nehemiah 13 is that sin squeezes the spiritual life out of God's people. Sin will squeeze the spiritual life out of God's people. If you want to have zero zeal for Jesus, just let sin go unchecked in your life. If you want no passion for God, dive into sin. And that's what you'll see. Secondly, God is gracious and merciful when drawing us out of our sin. He doesn't just shake his hands and say, well, forget it. You don't know what you're doing. You're a lost cause. That's not what God does. He's merciful in calling people away from their sin and to himself. The goodness of God to confront us in our sin. That's what you'll see in the the text. And then finally, living for the Lord will protect us from compromising with the world. Living for Jesus will protect you from compromising with the world. And so you'll see the application points once we get there. There's three of them, but really there's only two because the positive way to say it is live for God. Live for Jesus. The negative way to say that is don't compromise. Fight sin. And then what I want you to do is I want you to take the text and make it personal. All of us are dealing with sin because none of us have been made perfect. And what I'm going to call us to do is, as a congregation, lay the sin down and run to Jesus and live for His glory. And so that is coming at the end, and I want you to be prepared. Um. 2001 was uh, my senior year of high school. Uh, It was actually 2000 was our our football season. And we were loaded that year. We had a running back that was getting attention from Tennessee and Michigan State. uh, A lot of the big schools. And he was a legit football player. We had a big line. I was the smallest guy on a big line. I was out there at the tight end. That was a good spot to be away from the mammoths in there. We were ready to roll, and so we got t-shirts, our, our coaches would pick the theme for the year, and the, the theme for the year on the back of our shirts said, state champs, no excuses. State champs, no excuses. Well, we did not win the state championship that year. We did not make the playoffs that year. Third game of the season, the, the running back that was a legit football player towards ACL, The fourth game, I felt sorry for him, so I wanted to join the club. I tore my ACL. While I was on the training table, the backup running back came in with a broken tibia. 
He was done for the season. Well, our offensive tackle, the biggest guy on the line, was feeling left out. He was bit by a brown lacrosse and almost had to have his leg amputated. So a, a spider bite took his season. Our quarterback, not wanting to miss the party, uh, decided he was going to get concussed and missed a few games as well. And at the end of the year, six and four out of the playoffs, and us wondering what in the world happened. You have all of this promise and commitment at the beginning of the year. We're going to get somewhere. We're going to do something. And just a letdown. Well, if you remember, in Nehemiah 10, God's people made three commitments. We're going to honor God with our marriages. We're going to honor God on the Sabbath. And we're going to honor God by providing for the temple. All of these commitments made. But by the time you get to Nehemiah 13, every one of them broken. And it's a book that starts out with such hope. The wall is rebuilt in 52 days. The people are filling up the city. There's a revival in the city. People are worshiping God. They're reading the book of the law. They're turning from their sin. And by the end of the book, three compromises broken. So, what you're going to see here today is that Nehemiah doesn't end real well. And that's a theme in the Old Testament. And it's pointing us to Jesus. Sin is always an issue. Sin is the issue in your life, keeping you from God, keeping you from glorifying Jesus. And it's only Jesus that has the answer. And so as we dig through this, and it's going to be a little bit of reading, you're going to see, man, this is not how I thought this book would end. All right, so let's dig in. Chapter 13, we're going to read through. This entire chapter. So they just dedicated the wall. They just provided for the temple. Things are good until they're not. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call down curse on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent for a little while. Verse 4. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. That should be sending off alarms in your ears. And he was provided him a room, a large room, formerly used to store the grain offering and incense and the temple articles, and also the tithes of the grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For there, in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission, came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. Verse 8, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. 
So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought their tithes and grains, new wine, olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shalemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Pedadiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, the son of Zechor, the son of Manathiah, their assistant because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and his services. So commitment number one, broken. They did not provide for the temple. Well, there are still two other commitments that they made in chapter 10. Maybe they kept those. Let's start with verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah. So, so get this picture. Here is Nehemiah looking out on the city. He's looking out on a Sabbath day. Verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who had lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. So, so now you see the Israelites thought they were getting away with it. Well, if we let these people bring in food and we just buy it from them, we're not really breaking the law. Nehemiah didn't see it that way. Verse 17, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all of this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates, Jerusalem, before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me, this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. That would be strike two. They promised to keep the Sabbath. They used it like any other day. Well, maybe their marriage honored the Lord. Let's see. Verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now that's very important. What is God's word in? It's in Hebrew, the language of Judah. Parents are supposed to be raising up their kids to know the book of the Lord but they can't even speak the language. We keep reading. Verse 25, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Now, real quick, 
this is what they should have been doing to themselves. If you look back at Ezra, when they're confronted with sin, they beat their chest, they pulled out their hair, they put on sackcloth, and they mourned for their sin. But this people refused to repent. Now, I'm not going to do what Nehemiah does. We're not going to pull anybody's hair out. We're not going to beat anybody up. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to the sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons, for yourselves. Now, real quick, this and at the beginning of the chapter, this is not about ethnicity. This is about worship. And you're going to see that with the examples that Nehemiah is about to give. Whenever people got married to people from a different people, they brought in their gods. And then they started to worship their gods. They went after foreign gods and did awful things because they had forgotten God. So you pick it back up. Verse 26. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was none like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him a king over all of Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. And we'll read about that in just a little bit. Must we hear now that you are doing all of this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jodiah, son of Eliashab, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite. You remember him? He was boys with Tobiah who hated the things of God. These are enemies. These are now related to the high priest through marriage. The enemies have gotten closer, and the people don't even realize it. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites and everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provisions for the contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. That's how the book ends. Let's pray. Father, as we dig into this text, Lord, I pray that you help your word come alive in our hearts. Father, I pray that we're warned by this text. I pray that we're encouraged by this text. I pray that you're glorified with how we respond to this text. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, here we go. First off, I want you to see how Nehemiah purifies the temple. We won't reread the text, but just understand this. I want to read a little bit about Tobiah. A little bit about Tobiah. You see him in 210. And this is important because he has the luxury suite at the temple. Right? He's got the best room in the house of God. And this is who it is. This is who the high priest gave a spot to. Nehemiah 210. When Sambalat, the Horonite, who we just met, now related to the, the high priest, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed, and someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So you have these two guys that are making it off of the Israelites being in the situation they were before the wall was built. Their ruin was for their good. They were using the people. And then you see in Nehemiah 4.3, Tobiah the Ammonite, 
who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down this wall of stones. He's heckling the builders doing what God had called them to do. And now, after the wall is up, he is in the temple. But it gets worse. Not only is he in the temple, the supplies that are to provide for the people are not there. Because there's no room for them. Do you see this physical picture is a spiritual reality? And the place that should have been worship for God, an enemy of God, has been moved in. And I love what Nehemiah does. He comes in, takes his stuff, throws it out. This will not go on here as long as I'm here. That's a beautiful picture of how to respond to sin in your own life. We keep reading. Derek Kinder put it this way. Nehemiah stormed in as violently as one day his master would. The people had settled down in his absence to a comfortable compromise with the enemy. Nehemiah would have none of the compromise. They had promised we will not neglect the house of God in 1039. By 13, verses 4 to 14, the servants of God in the temple are gone because they have no provision. What happened? What happened in just a short moment of time? Tobiah here, angry against the people of God, and he must have been a rather wise guy because Nehemiah made it clear he was an enemy. And in 52 days, despite the opposition, the wall was built. And I don't know what happened, but Tobiah must have known the right people. He had the ear of the high priest, and somehow, as soon as Nehemiah gets called back to give a report to the king, he works his way into the temple. But it's not just an added room that they put up for him to be there. He took the place, the storeroom, for the food and the drinks and the supplies for the people working the temple who would go before the people to their God. This doesn't, this doesn't want like a trailer out back. This was a primary spot, and it cost the people spiritually. Now, here's the spiritual reality in all of our lives. If you have in your life sin, it will take the place of worship. So you might have a storeroom. We can use a hundred different examples. I'll, I'll go with students. You have a storeroom where you're trying to please God by focusing on the Word, right? So you're making effort to spend time in the Bible. You're writing verses down on index cards. You're, you're doing your best to memorize them and to think on these things. Do you think the enemy is going to say, oh, good for you? Mm -mm. This is what's going to happen. The enemy is going to come out with something on social media that's very interesting. Keep your attention. One video will go to another video will go to another video. 
there'll be a new video game, Madden 2027, and it'll be the, the hottest rage, and everybody will be playing it. There'll be something on TV. There'll be a girlfriend or a boyfriend that, that wants your time. You'll have to work because now you've got a car and now you've got to pay for gas. And all of a sudden you forget the things of God because the storeroom set aside for time with Jesus has been filled up with other stuff. That's just one area. We could do this with retirement. We could do this with hopelessness. Right, so, so this, is, this is what we want to do. We want to honor God. We want the storeroom filled with hope because we know who we are in Christ. But instead of us filling it with hope on who we are in Christ, we filled it up with doubt. We filled it up with bitterness and anger. Things aren't going the way we thought they should go. You see, all of us have storerooms that are filled up with resources to glorify God. And if you fill that place up with the enemy, you will no longer be able to worship God. And so what I want you to do, I want you to ask God to show you your storerooms. And maybe you didn't realize it, but there's a Tobiah that has moved into one of your storerooms that should be pointed to the glory of God, but instead, there's no worship going on in that area of your life. And maybe today you need to make a decision. And so what happens Nehemiah comes and purifies the temple. That's a good way to do it. Throw that sin out of your life. Confess it to Jesus and turn from it. There is no room. Not a little bit. He doesn't get a sofa in the storeroom. He doesn't get a little bed, a twin bed. He gets nothing. He's out of the room. This is for God. Bring in the grain. Bring in the wine. Bring in the stuff for the temple. Tell the Levites, get back to work because this will be used for the glory of God. That's what you have to do in your life. And the good news is, there was one that is coming that cleanses the temple. And he's still doing that today. We keep reading. The Nehemiah 13, 15 to 22. Nehemiah purifies the Sabbath. And, and I can only imagine. And I wonder if Nehemiah thought, man, I was only gone for this long. And we don't know how long he was gone. Could have been a couple years. Could have been one year. Takes about 55 days to travel the way they traveled to where he was going. To the kingdom of Persia. To the capital. To the king where he was a cupbearer. But I wonder if he thought, man, what has happened? Comes back on the Sabbath and sees everybody working. This day was supposed to be given to the Lord honored and holy and set apart and everybody's working and, and i love what he does here though he makes zero provision for them to defame the the sabbath do you, do you see what he does as soon as the sun goes down boom shut the gates nobody else is coming in we're not bringing any more loads of new clothes or food they're not coming in the gates are closed from evening until the sabbath is over so he puts that check in place. And then, when people are spending the night at the wall, well, I can't get in, but maybe somebody will come out here and do some business. He threatens to arrest them. And I can only imagine, can you imagine, you're inside, and you're used to buying whatever on the Sabbath, right? But now Nehemiah's back. 
Can't have fun when Nehemiah's around. All right? We've got to honor God when he's around. Meanwhile, the people from Tyre are out there, and they're having a fish fry. And you just so happen to be craving fish, but you can't get there because the gates are closed. And they're not allowed in, but you can smell it. And you're like, man, I'm going to get out there somehow. I'm going to buy me some grub tomorrow. It's not going to let Nehemiah see me. Can you imagine what Nehemiah was thinking? You're dishonoring God. This is what happened before. Don't you remember when we were in exile? It hadn't been that long ago. You remember when these walls were rubble. It's because of stuff like this. Isn't it amazing how quick we forget the consequences of sin? Isn't it it amazing? Now, it's easy to talk about Nehemiah and, and those guys, but how about in our own lives? It's easy to forget the consequences. It's easy to make compromises. It's easy to ignore the things of God if it's us. But man, never forget this. Nobody gets away with it. There are consequences. And if you take God lightly, it'll be to your eternal detriment. And so Nehemiah comes and he purifies the Sabbath. Now, how long does this time last? I don't know. This is the last chapter of Nehemiah. Does he have to go back to the king and come back again? I don't know. But I know this. It didn't take long for them to forget about honoring God with the temple and honoring God with the Sabbath. And then we go to marriages. And it's just amazing how deep sin runs. You know the consequences of sin, and, and you guys can see this. You guys know this. You know, what does it matter if it's just me? It'll, it'll only hurt me. No, there's always consequences. It's like a grenade when it goes off. Anybody around it is affected by it. That's what sin looks like. And, and here you see how deep it goes. Uh, verses 23 to 29, where Nehemiah purifies the people, and it's in regard to marriage. They're, they're not even learning the word of God. They have children that don't know Hebrew. They can't speak the Bible. And then you have a high priest who's related to the enemy. And, and what does, and now here's a little point, side note of, of application. What does Nehemiah do? He says, hey, don't you remember Solomon? Solomon was the wisest guy on the planet. He asked God for wisdom, but you want to know what got Solomon? Sin. For as smart as he was, he had no plan for sin. And, and we read in, in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, this is what King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. That's why. That's why you don't intermarry. You don't want to marry those ladies because your heart will be turned to their gods. And then you see what happens. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives with royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, the Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built high places for the Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of Ammonites. 
He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. So for all of these wives, you have all of these altars to all of these different gods. And Nehemiah's like, why are you doing this? Just a few chapters ago, you promised to honor God with your marriage. Now we're doing the same thing. And the problem is so deep that Sambalat, one of our enemies, is now related to the high priest through marriage. And so we read this, and I wonder, where is your heart at now? Like, well, what's the point of this? Right? Like, it, is it something with sin? Is it something with Sabbath? Like, I think, one, this text is screaming out for the need for Jesus. The, the Old Testament doesn't end well. Nehemiah is just one of the books. You know how Deuteronomy ends? So Moses leads the people out of Egypt. He sees the promised land, but he's not allowed to enter the promised land. He dies outside the promised land. You know why? Sin. Well, we, we keep reading. You got the judges. And if you read a couple of chapters in the judges, what you see, God raises up a judge, rescues the people. The people love it. They love God. But then the judge dies. The people turn from God, and God's hands of favor is removed. Eventually, after enough time, the people call out for God, and God will raise up another judge to rescue them out of captivity. And they're like, oh, everything's good. We love God. The judge dies. The people do evil and run from the Lord. And the cycle just keeps repeating itself. You see it with Gideon. You see it with Samson. You see it with Samuel. It never ends well. Oh, well, what about when they finally get a king? What about David? How's it go for David? Well, his son tries to take over his kingdom. That's how it went for David. Why? Because of sin. We just read about Solomon. Chronicles and First and Second Kings, all of that, there's never a king that it ends well for. And then you have the prophets warning the people of God, if you don't stop, if you don't stop ignoring, from, ignoring God, if you, stop, if you don't stop living however you want to and forgetting that there is a God that's given us a, a way to live, if you don't stop, we will be taken into captivity. God will remove His hand of protection. Do they listen to the prophets? Nope. So they're taken into captivity. And yet, even there, God hears them and calls them back. And then you have Ezra and Nehemiah. The temple is built. The wall is rebuilt. Things are looking good. And then Nehemiah 13. And so I would be asking, what is our hope? Because if I'm honest, I think we struggle with sin also. We confess it to God. We ask for forgiveness, but we're still fighting sin. We're still impatient with people. We still deal with lust. We still deal with anger. We still deal with selfishness and pride, laziness and sloth. All of us in the room deal with this sin. So what is our hope? Are we just going to be like Nehemiah? Jesus is our hope. And you see this again and again. Uh, Paul, New Testament, hits it on the nail, hits it on the head. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. 
But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Paul, talking about sin in his life, fighting sin, wanting to do what is right. So what's his conclusion? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Jesus is your answer for your sin. Jesus is my answer for my sin. I have no hope to clean myself up. I can make commitment after commitment after commitment. If Jesus does not rescue me, I'm done. And so are you. Hebrews 10, 10 and 14 puts it this way. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. For by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That is your standing. If you're in Christ, you have been made holy. You have been made perfect. You can't improve on perfection. And yet at the same time, we are being made what we already are. Isn't that an awesome thing? We should be growing in Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit should be growing in our lives. You should be more joyful today because the Spirit of God dwells in you. You should be growing in that. You should be more patient and gentle, kind, patient. Should be growing. All while understanding we haven't arrived yet. But one day, one day we will. Or you could put it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus did perfectly, fulfilled the law, we receive by faith. If you have never done that, today you need to do that. You will not overcome your sin on your own. You'll be left eternally separated from a God who loves you and who sent a rescuer and his name's Jesus. But then there's another group in the room today. And this group, this is the challenge, and it's, it's the same challenge, one put positively, one put negatively. Put positively is to live for the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. Every area of your life to the glory of Jesus. Something as simple as how you listen to a sermon, do it to the glory of God. Take notes, write down texts, pray as, you, as we go through this. Don't just go through the motions. Glorify God in how you sleep. Glorify God in how you wake up. Glorify God in how you go to school and how you work, how you relate to your wife and how you relate to your husband. Glorify God with your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Glorify God in every area of your life. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. This is what Nehemiah did. You see this three times. After every rebuke, he's saying, hey, remember me, Lord, for this. Remember me, Lord, for this. Remember me, Lord, for this. Why? Because he lived to the glory of God. And it made all the difference for him. I want to bring up a guy. His name was Baruch. Anybody remember Baruch? We read briefly on him. He's one of the guys that worked on the wall. But I want you to, to hear this. And I think it's a good picture of two people. After him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle of the doorway of the house of Eliashab, the high priest. 
You have one guy who was zealously working to the glory of God, just putting bricks on the wall. And then you have a high priest who is putting enemies into the storerooms. Who are you going to be? Will you live for the glory of God? Or will you be compromised in your sin? We keep reading, and and this is the, the negative way to put this. Do not compromise. You'll be tempted to compromise in every walk of life. When you get older, when you're younger, there's always a temptation to compromise. It's not that big a deal. That's old-fashioned. Nobody believes that anymore. We stand on the Word of God, and we make zero compromises for that. We believe that God shows us how marriage should work. We believe that God shows us how gender works. We believe that God shows us how sex works. And we will not compromise. We believe that God shows us how giving works. God shows us how we can glorify Him, and we will not compromise. You see it again and again, compromise after compromise in Nehemiah. And you see it again and again in the church. Now here's my question to you. Where are the areas of compromise in your life? Could be personally, could be relationally. And I wrote down some, and I want you to, to fill in your own, but this might help you think. This might help you think. I want to glorify God with my body, but that storeroom is filled with sex outside of marriage, pornography, gluttony, drunkenness, drugs, and laziness. I want to glorify God with encouraging others in the Lord, but that storeroom is filled with lies and gossip, hate, slander, capping on others for a cheap laugh. I want to glorify God with my life, but that storeroom is filled up with my agenda, my comfort, my schedule. I'll glorify God if I get some time. I want to glorify God with my marriage, but that storeroom is filled up with selfishness and pride and anger and bitterness and hopelessness. I want to glorify God with my family, but that storeroom is filled up with making sports and practices more important than the things of God, iPads and television shows. I would tell my kids about Jesus, but I really don't care as long as they make good grades, stay out of trouble, and are quiet. I want to glorify God with my free time, my summer vacations, but that storeroom is filled up with personal comfort, longing for more stuff, bigger toys, and better destinations. Look at your own life this morning. Look at the storerooms that should be used to glorify God, to worship the Lord. Has an enemy moved in? And this is what I'm going to ask you to do. It's going to be a little bit different. We're not going to sing a a hymn at the end. But what we're going to do is have an opportunity to pray for one another. And you may say, you know what? You don't have to share what's in the storeroom. You don't have to share what it is. But what I'm going to ask, and listen, (laughs) there is no music going on. This is just us in the room. But what I'm going to ask is for people to stand up that say, you know what, there's a room here, and I don't want it to be filled with this junk that's in it. I want to throw it out like Nehemiah did to Tobiah. I'm going to stand up, and I want people to pray for me. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to stand up, and people will pray for you. Is that a decision that you want to make? Is there anybody in here that says, that's me, Storeroom's filled. I need help.
And this is what I'm going to ask us to do as a, as a church family. We're going to pray for one another. And this is what we're going to pray. We're going, we're going to ask, obviously, that Jesus is our hope. But then we're going to pray specifically for the people standing. That we help and that with God's help, they throw out the junk in their lives. And they live to the glory of Jesus. Hey, and that's all of us in the room. Let's pray. Father, you are an awesome God. And Lord, we fall way short. And yet you give us Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that we see the beauty and the power that is in your Son. Lord, that he can purify us that he can make us righteous by giving us his righteousness and paying for our sin. And Lord, I thank you for the boldness in the people that have stood. Lord, I pray that you give them your power, fill them with your spirit. I pray that those rooms are cleaned out. That the stuff that has distracted us from glorifying you is thrown to the curb. And set us ablaze to live for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.